0: And I meant to do a, a bigging up and a, and a bit of context before, so I'm just going to do that right now before we go any further, uh, just to say that the first series of Fortitude is Sky Atlantic's biggest drama commission to date, the premiere episode having been watched by more than, uh, more than 3.2 million times so far. It's probably gone up. Uh, not only a huge hit with Sky Atlantic customers, but around uh, the world where broadcasters in more than 170 territories bought the drama. So a massive, massive hit, Simon.
1: Uh, Congratulations. Thank you, yeah.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Hence having season two done and dusted, and I believe, is there a season three
1: imminent Um, at some point? Well, they get me started writing. I've started writing season three, and once uh, season two is broadcast and you see how it goes down, what the figures are like and what the reactions are like, they either keep me going or um, cut me loose. Yeah. Yeah.
0: You seem like such a nice, normal person. Um. <laughs> this is completely superficial <laughs> but it is the most extraordinary series, I mean I haven't seen uh, series one so I was just catching up with it there and I, I'm looking forward to actually watching the first series it's really
1: weird watching that um, that catch up at the front because it's just all the plot condensed into, and you think it took us 12 episodes to get all, yeah. this, all this across, and there it all is in 30 seconds
0: well do, t- t- tell us about um, the genesis of it? Because am I right in thinking that initially you thought of this as a, as a film yes. idea before yeah.
1: television? Yeah, I was working um, on another project. I got pulled in I worked work quite a lot in London with a company called Tiger Aspect one of the television production companies and they had me rewriting a terrible horror film It um, was a sort of skateboarding vampire terrible thing <laughs> and I was trying to fix it but uh, it was unfixable and um, all the time I was working on it, me and the script editor, who worked on this and I've worked with for years, were kept having this conversation about how valuable um, a monster is, and how the, you know the our favourite films from growing up, things like Alien or The Thing, have s- created something exceptional and utterly surprising and shocking, and if we could think one up. We thought we would be able to, you know, um, I would be able to write it into a film script and we'd be able to make our fortune out of it. Mm-hmm. And the, the monster that we, and we, this was lots and lots of conversations. And one of the things that I'd always been interested in was the way Ridley Scott and the writers on Alien developed the alien creature, the chest-bursting thing. And they did it by, um, they used the example of this, this creature called the Ichneuman wasp. Which is a parasitical wasp that lays eggs inside living caterpillars. And the eggs hatch and the larvae burst out. They eat the caterpillar from the inside and burst out. And that's where he got the model for the monster, an alien. And I thought, what if we go right back, instead of turning it into an alien monster from another planet, we go back to that little wasp and we go back to the world of insect parasites. So I did a lot of research and reading and was reading all this stuff about how current research indicates that parasites inside a host organism can also affect the behaviour of the organism quite significantly. And this felt like a really cool idea, that the monster was actually creating a monster out of a, a human individual. So we then went into this kind of discussion about how do we get this parasite into a human community? And we thought, what if it comes out of permafrost? So that led us, and, and all, these, all these different decisions quite quickly, you know, create the world that you're, you're gonna be setting the story in. We needed permafrost, and originally we were gonna set it in Russia and make it a low budget, um, grungy horror flick. Mm-hmm. But that all changed when I told this idea to uh, Patrick Spence, who's the executive mm-hmm. producer on it, whose company, Fifty Fathoms, are the production company that make this. Mm-hmm. And Patrick was the BBC drama controller at uh, Northern Ireland. And uh, he'd just gone freelance. And Sky had just started putting out signals to all the writers and producers that they were looking for new material. And I was having a conversation with Patrick, and I was telling him this, this esoteric idea about a parasite in Siberia in a low-budget Russian film. And he said, why don't you keep the idea but set it somewhere where we can have English-speaking characters and set it somewhere in a community where you can get 12 episodes out of it, not just one film story. So this all came together, and it turned from this grungy independent Russian film that was never going to get made yeah. in a million years to a, a, an idea that I could write down on two sides of paper and pitch to the new head of drama at Sky Atlantic who's a woman called Mensa, Mensah who used to run BBC Scotland so I knew, I'd knew i known her on and off for years as well and Sky Atlantic had just sort of um, proclaimed this ambition to start competing with HBO They are the channel that buys all the new HBO seasons and broadcasts them in the UK. And they were trying to set up their own um, drama production uh, um, shows that would hold their own against those kind of quality American, big, long-running American shows. Mm -hmm. So they were looking for some sort of idea that they could do this with. And I pitched uh, the Fortitude idea to Anne Mensa, and it was the fastest commission green light I've ever had for anything, uh, and yet it's the biggest yeah. um, budget. When we when this when they worked out how much this was going to cost, it was the biggest budget British television production e- ever um, at the time. That how much? Uh, um, the first season cost. <laughs> 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 the first season cost twenty-seven million. Wow. Which is you know. Extraordinary, and and that's because the television environment has just revolutionised in the past um, five, six, seven years. First of all, with the, the kind of success of the cable channels like HBO mm-hmm. and AMC, and all that that wave of stuff that came out of America, from The Wire to The Sopranos to Sex and the City. Um, Deadwood, which is my favourite, mm-hmm. all these fabulous shows that came out of HBO, that could only have an existence, they could only be the kind of quality that they are because they were on cable, they were not network broadcasts. So the, the rules of um, you know, censorship and uh, tone control and all yeah. those different things, the s- stuff they can deal with, has shifted.
0: And that's and interesting because that's like a precursor to Netflix. Uh, and all of that we we, we all talk about binge well, that, watching, and we that, all
1: and we all do it. Yeah, and that's the second phase. of yeah. it, is the big um, Amazon, Netflix, and Google are pushing even. You know, they're now pr- going to produce. Mm-hmm. So first it was the cable channels, HBO, and A- AMC. Now it's these internet giant channels that are that are going to pick up. Uh, and and the the opportunities for actors, for writers, yeah. for directors is just. Absolutely exploded. Yeah. So does it does it occur to you
0: thinking you know like five ten years ago the mm. idea coming up with such an out there idea,
1: the, uh, I I absolutely have, impossible. Well, for it to y- be, commissioned. I, I would have taken. I, I wouldn't have got a meeting at the BBC for this sort of idea. And you know they would just be being realistic and yeah. say, you want to do a twelve part drama, and you want to shoot it in the Arctic. It's just not no chance that would happen. Yeah. So um, it needed it needed that second wave. You know the big money from sky and amazon and netflix to sort of
0: and how much of a joy is it for you as a writer i mean we're hearing now i think it was just in variety this week that the cone brothers are, are to branch into television with a western series called something like the odyssey of barney scruggs or something mm-hmm. of name like that and um, but it's the it's the joy for writers of having that you know six ten twelve mm-hmm. or longer seasons and you can really actually make something much more satisfying for you as a writer but also for us to yeah. enter um, what I th- what the joy for me of these long running series is just you get wrapped up in a world, mm. and it's just such a joy to enter that world. It's very sad when a series comes comes to an end, but mm. how that must be a, a good thing for you as a writer, but also a huge challenge because it's a much bigger canvas.
1: Well, what's so enjoyable about a show like Fortitude is that it is such a kind of clear cut world that you get mm. to design in its in its entirety. Um, I I've always been attracted to sort of extreme environments. I like setting dramas in pressure cookers uh, of some sort. Even when I was just a, a theatre writer, a play like um, uh, Life of Stuff was all all took place in one night in a, a hellish sort of warehouse nightclub place, and and nobody was getting out until it was all you know till <laughs> the dust settled. And um, Fortage is a bit like that. It's um, two hundred miles from the north of the northern tip of Norway. In the Arctic Circle, it's the northernmost habitable, hab- inhabited mm-hmm. town on the planet. Mm-hmm. And once you're there, you're you're kind of stuck. Um, there's not, you know, the cops. The cops aren't particularly realistic, really, because you know there, there's a convention going on here, which is a sort of thriller, crime investigation genre that that we're in. Um, the cops in the real place basically are uh, dealing with environmental. Um, vandalism and wildlife crime. They're not dealing with the stuff that they deal with uh-huh. in this. Funnily enough. Funnily enough. <laughs> no, they haven't. haven't Did you have
0: so- Sophie Grable say that on purpose? There's been a murder in yeah, well, yeah.
1: the Taggart Stiley. <laughs> <laughs> Did I, I, sell, I was telling earlier so, <laughs> So we were talking about how important the killing was to the way Tellers had changed um, and Sophie w- when somebody asked us at a and a when we were down in London said uh, I don't think people realise that the killing is just Taggart, only lots more episodes it's kind of true, so she, they she, they all watch Taggart they yeah. think Taggart's great
0: and of course uh, she was starring alongside Blythe Duff in, in the James Place. Yes, so I think she got a proper yes, grounding indeed, in it indeed, yeah, yeah. so was it a coincidence or not?
1: um <laughs> It's she just says it so well. There's No, it's an homage. Yes. To yeah, an <laughs> yeah.
0: homage. I love it. And um, so, so, yeah, and and thinking of the life of stuff, that takes hmm. us way back to what, is it the mid-90s? Um, 93-ish or no, four? Play? I mean, look no. at somebody else look to, to tell you. Look <laughs> at <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. And
0: you won a couple of awards for that, for your most promising
1: young... No, the... Uh, was like that early? That was, er- that was earlier. Right. I, won, I won most promising twice. Right. <laughs> <laughs> a ten-year interval. Really? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I forgot they'd give me it, and I got it again. Oh, I love that. Yeah, it most promising, then, no fulfilment for yeah. ten years. Yeah.
0: yeah. But it's so interesting for you starting off as an actor and as as a writer in stage. And, mm. you know, again, it's just, it's, it's wonderful how all of this has come together, as we've discussed with how television and... And viewing has been revolutionised. Because I guess your your career could have continued possibly uh, in theatre, um, with occasional forays into telly. Well, yeah, it was.
1: I was part of the generation of playwrights: Chris Hannon, Peter Arnott, myself. You know who we kind of peaked before they started making any money. Um, it, it's uh, you know David Gregg and David Harrower. Their plays mm-hmm. are on across Europe, yes, touring. Across in, the world. Yeah, across yeah. the world. The Scottish Theatre managed to do that, and we missed that boat. So we, we're we all kind of... So I moved into television. Mm-hmm. And, and that was because Life of Stuff, um, which was, was great fun to do as a stage play. I absolutely loved it. It was a fantastic time. And it went down to London, it went on at the Donmar. And the year it went on at the Donmar, it, it won um, the Critics' Choice and... Oh, God, something else. Evening Standard Award. Yeah. And that simply meant that people started asking me to come in and have meetings to talk about television projects. Yeah. And it started off quite small. I started off writing Dr. Finlay, the David Rintoul, Ian Bannon, um, Annette Crosby one, which I loved doing. It was great yeah. fun. I, lo- I loved that show. Um, then it, it finished, and I did various other things. The, the next one was um, the next one that changed things was uh, a Channel 4 thriller called Low Winter Sun, which was about, probably about 10 years ago and um, that got a, a bunch of television awards and that just suddenly meant I could start pitching stuff like this and get the meetings.
0: Yeah. Do you, do, I wondered if your uh, experience as an actor helps you when it comes to the pitching? <coughs> yeah, I think
1: it does, yeah. The pitching, we, t- we had to pitch that in America because we had to t- go over and try and find a co-producer amongst all the American cable channels and that is a di- completely different process from here. A meeting here is, is fairly relaxed. Mm-hmm. In LA, when you go into these studios to pitch to HBO or AMC, it's terrifying. You have to—you, you, you, you know—it's so high-powered. And they, you sit opposite these glossy LA executives, and they, there's some niceties, and then they say, uh, "So tell us about Fortitude. Tell us the idea." And you, you've got to then perform and sell it to them, mm-hmm. you know, to the best of your ability. And it's really scary. It's so, so the
0: acting does come in handy. It, it you did. can really prep that yeah. and go for it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. Love it. Um, uh, and in terms of just thinking of this whole idea of the enclosed place that you've got to write about, and all the best stories have that, mm. some kind of community, um, clearly, just even seeing this, this first episode, and those of you who watched the, the first series, you've got a whole bunch of different nationalities there yeah. too. Is that a challenge in terms of
1: yeah. the writing? It is. It is. Ha- it's a, the writing I kind of developed... When I worked in the theatre, had a a demotic, a a, a, a a It was rooted very much in the world I come from, the vocabulary I use. I mean, I often thought it felt to me, my stuff felt like um, my version of the way John Byrne writes, to an extent. You know, it felt like mm-hmm. it, it evolved out of what John started doing.
0: So you get a rhythm as well. You,
1: you get rhythms. You get that. You get, you get all sorts of convoluted syntax that yeah. Scots are particular. Get cut like I am now. You know, they get all tangled up and. And and that's great for comedy. Mm-hmm. Um, when you start writing for a world like Fortitude, where half the characters mm-hmm. are speaking their second language, there you lose that sort of flavour, mm-hmm. and it becomes something a bit more homogenised, and that's um, that's less fun. It's it, it's an area of the writing that you that isn't as available to use. To but there's the
0: there was a cat. And I wondered how much. It, um, uh, control or, or uh, you had with casting because clearly there's a lot of quirky stuff going on there too with, mm. with people who, who clearly English isn't their first language but there's a lot of comedy coming through there too and actually to be honest with you the people that, that English is a second language I can't tell because they speak English better than, than we do
1: we, Well the place that's <laughs> set is um uh, is a real place, Foulbard, yeah um a t- town called Longyearbyen and when you go there the, the half the population is Norwegian and they all speak perfect English yes. With that just that slight Norwegian lilt, yeah, and, and it's an incredibly cosmopolitan place because it's got a, a research science base of four um, a, a university with four departments in it, uh, and they attract uh, scientists from all over the world, specialists mm-hmm. from absolutely everywhere. So there's there's a Chinese f- uh, faculty and there's a. There's a, there's a Filipino community in Longyearbyen because somebody went out to work in the hotel right. and brought family. Yeah. It's an incredibly mixed yeah. community. There's no, there's no indigenous population in the place. So but what's lovely about that,
0: it, certainly from, even just from watching that, there's this, is, this sort of strangeness yeah. is really appealing it's as a well. Sort of off kilterness of it. And the, the comedy comes through that too. I mean, I love the two young female,
1: I think the, they're the fantastic. two police
0: women. They're brilliant.
1: Yeah, they're great. They're really good in the second season. They yeah. give, we, we give them more. The girl that plays, plays Ingrid has got, you know, she's got no profile at all, and she did, um, she did an audition tape for us from Sweden, and she's doing the whole thing, <laughs> pretending her fingers are a gun as a, as a cop, and she looks as though she it believe, believes it all the way through. Yeah. And she looks like an angry deer in this audition tape. She's just fantastic. Yeah. We, we, know we use them more and more
0: tell me a bit, bit more about the writing because i know you've talked about you know the, the sort of american approach to writing where it's mm. more of a you know you get a group of people in a room and, and go for it whether that's drama or, or comedy what's the approach here
1: well we tried that um partly because we n- n- nobody none of us had any experience of making a show of this sort of scale the people who do have the experience are the, are the hbo teams that write mad men and the sopranos and all those uh, or, or breaking bad And you can actually now, there's a lot of interviews with the guys that do that, Vince Gilligan and David Chase and all these different writers, and you can kind of get an insight into how they operate to make these big shows. So we basically just copied that uh, for the first season. We did what they do. We created a writer's room, and we had eight writers sitting around a table, and we had white wall charts up on the wall, and we set about it the way the Americans do it, and it didn't work. And it didn't work because the... American culture, television industry culture, has people doing that from a very, very early stage of their career. You join a writer's room and you learn how to get involved in a writer's room. The British um, writers don't have that experience. We were were, um, bringing in really high-end writers, terrific writers, like Ben Richards and uh, Robert Jones. Five BAFTAs between them these guys have got. And what we found was they couldn't subjugate their voice to the, the show. So we discovered almost straight away Robert Jones wrote episode two following my episode one and it was really good but it was a completely different show. It was his show, you know, it, was the, it was his voice, the relationship between Dan and Morton, the, two, the sheriff and the other cop was completely different from the way I wrote it because he just didn't commit to the same antagonism <laughs> that I had and one by one all these other writers that we brought into the writers room um, fell away and I ended up writing, I wrote 10 out of the 12 episodes in the first season and then the second season we just used one other writer and we did half and half yeah and then the third we it, it doesn't work that that writer's room system hasn't worked it didn't work in all the, in quite a few other shows is, is it
0: used at all and with British writers Yep,
1: they've all we've all had a go at it quite recently
0: what what and successfully no. at all no
1: no it almost always ends up being the original um, author ends up writing most of the show.
0: Do you think that could shift or is it just too much of a huge cultural mountain to climb? I think, well, I think it
1: we have to get r- young writers in much earlier uh-huh. and then it will gradually shift. I think yeah. I think it has to because it's quite it's um th- I mean Sky don't like it because they they worry I get hit by bus and that's the end of season three of Fortitude, because <laughs> the writer's gone, you know. So they rea- they genuinely no, like it, they, yeah. they, they want us to try and... How, can I just it. ask
0: you, how nightmarish was that for you? I mean, it must be lovely when it all finishes and you get the accolades and the viewing figures and everything, but for those writers all to drop off and you to be left to a- fill that mighty void sounds um, like a nightmare, actually. It was actually.
1: yeah, it was... It was uh, it, yeah, it was... Um, wasn't it? <laughs> it was <like> a <laughs> guess. It's it's funny enough. Enough. Yeah, it was a full <laughs> lot, yeah. um, and it... I mean, the the scariest thing about a big show like that is the sh- the way it's scheduled. You have de- uh, you've delivered the first two episodes, and they go into pre-production, and then you write episodes three and four, and they're starting to shoot episodes one and two. So the train leaves the station while you're still sort of running down the tracks. That's to catch you up, and you've got to stay sane enough to write episodes, you know, five to twelve, as the train's getting closer and closer <laughs> behind you all the time. And that's, um, that's horrible. And
0: it's what kind of terrifying. team do you have working with you to help share that,
1: that burden? I work with, um, closely with a script editor who's kind of also a story producer. It's a bit mm. of a, a, a mutant job <laughs> description we've given him. Yep. Um, and there's an exec producer who is a sort of second pair of eyes who oversees the scripts as they come in. Yeah. And they all, go, they all, all the scripts, when they get handed in, they go to Sky. And we've got an exec at Sky who gives us notes on them as well. But they've been pretty hands off. I mean, t- your relationship with the broadcast is really important. Yes. Sometimes they're murdering you with twenty pages of notes for yeah. a forty-page script. Sometimes they're giving you one or two notes, and and you know they let you run. They let us away with a lot in this.
0: And thing. does that mean they're letting you away with you even more in the set? They let you away with you even more in the second season because of the success of the first one. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And um, d- just tell us a wee bit about influences. Um, I mean, growing up a boy in the. Seventies yeah. presumably
1: watching a lot of telly. Sixties and seventies, yeah. Um, I, I suppose I I watched a lot of telly. Like I was thinking about uh, things like the Avengers, Danger Man, and um, the Prisoner. They're
0: all weird, yeah. I suppose was there, was yeah. Weird, yeah. there was a really weird period. It was, it was quite trippy. Uh huh.
1: When s- nobody was in charge. <laughs> <laughs> <No>. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I think that that was when I was. You know that was it. That was a sort of formative mm-hmm. imaginative, imaginative period. Was yeah. watching that sort of stuff.
0: Yeah, I mean, you look back to theatre. I mean, do you have? Would you consider mm-hmm. writing for theatre again if some
1: yeah w- opportunity popped up? Yeah, I've got a half-written thing that I've spoken to David Gregg about at Lyceum, which I'd love to get up and running, called Flayed Baby
0: flayed baby, baby. it's a comedy it's a
1: comedy yeah i'd love to do that
0: great title yeah. great title so you you definitely enjoy the weird side of things and people have talked about you know li- this being lynchy and you know shades of twin peaks but i don't know how much you're into that kind of comparison um, and I, well um you
1: i suppose um, it's a small town with lots of highly defined characters in it i mean i absolutely love. Lynch, that was important as well, you know, from head up to mm. Blue Velvet. Mm. Twin Peaks, I have to say, I, I love what I watched a bit, but I didn't ever manage to g- get through the whole lot of Twin Peaks. I think I've still got the box set in a yeah. shelf. Um, I saw episodes 1, Because that was back in the days before binge yes, and streaming. Exactly. I know it
0: was much more difficult to I think commit. I got
1: it on Max as well. <laughs> <I know>. <laughs> <laughs> love it.
0: I love it. I've got um, lots more questions but we don't have too much time so if you want to ask a question of Simon, put your hand up or just shout. Yes. How much
1: involvement did you have in the Little Winter Suns AMC? None, so, at all. none at all. Absolutely none. They bought it, I, I didn't, you know, it wasn't mine, I wrote it but the company that paid me owned it. Uh, they bought it, they didn't contact me at all. They used most of the material from the two episodes that existed as they were opening two episodes and then they just went their own own path. And I've, I've watched the first two episodes. Have you seen it? No, I haven't seen that. it. They, they do one big thing. It's not very good. They completely take the humour out of it. And it's just poor-faced and angry. I saw, I saw some reviews saying that, right? Well, that, they, made a, they made a big decision to do that, and it, it, it wrecked it. It didn't work. And it only did one season. At um, two or a bit million per ep, yeah.
0: um, would you ever consider going back to your roots? And doing a low-budget feature. Oh, of course, yeah. And I mean, I know this. I mean, this is kind of quite, quite a different sort of life, isn't it? You know, kind of doing the kind of the high-end t- telly. Can you see yourself doing more of the same, or can you see yourself doing, you know, having the freedom now to perhaps work on other kind of passion projects?
1: Yeah, that I think that's. Um I I mean it's one of the reasons that I think like this, it's really hard to get stuff made up here. It's hard to write um, Scottish-based drama and find anybody to to make it. I mean BBC Scotland aren't making much, so I've I've had I've had things that were sitting at BBC Scotland that I was there's a thing that's a follow-up to Low Winter Sun, um, called Quiet Breath, which I'm really passionate about, which is. Uh, You know, and I would be looking for a cast like you know Ewan Bremner and uh, Stuart Macquarie and Paul Higgins, and I know I know how to cast it and everything, and there's nobody going to make it, because it's been decided in you know BBC London that something as highly um, specific as that doesn't have the kind of appeal for a wide audience that they would require in order to finance it. So it's, it's weirdly impossible to get quality television drama based up here made I can't find out how to do it yet at the moment. but I would go back and write the theatre uh, very happily
0: it's, it's in a way it's quite surprising that isn't it when you think about something like the uh, you're talking about the shift for something like Sopranos mm-hmm. But equally later there was a shift with the killing and the whole yeah. Scandi noir effect and people absolutely not having a problem with subtitles and it's great for Gaelic drama too it's kind of yeah. like and therefore, it can
1: be sold around the world. You know, stories are stories. Well, particular, the the appetite for things that are very specific seems to be bigger and bigger. Yeah. You know, things that have a really, um, you know, clear identity and, and, and are faithful to a voice and a culture. But uh, that's not yet translated into opportunities for that kind of drama in anywhere up here that I know of
0: it was nice to see Brian McCardy there oh god love him though didn't last long Poor no lad. he
1: doesn't uh, it's very hard what? to talk about it because okay. it's so but it's so hard to talk about a thing that is without spoiling it Yes. it's kind does of he come back
0: <laughs> <laughs> okay don't I don't say anything yeah.
1: it? maybe that wasn't him those
0: grizzly aha uh-huh.
1: maybe it was but maybe
0: right those, any, those grizzly shots of the sort of spinal column that was yeah, you, we've particularly got, we've, lovely we need
1: grizzly It's part of our uh, <laughs> show identity now we've got you haven't seen the first season. I have not So you haven't Yet. seen um, Shirley Allardyce hacking her mum open with a teaspoon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, actually, it was a teaspoon. It was a teaspoon in the script. And the director said, that's ridiculous, use a fork. A teaspoon, <laughs> a teaspoon would bend.
0: But that's the thing. It's a fine line, isn't it? Between kind of like hideous yeah. horror and it being funny. Yeah.
1: No, that, I and love you enjoy that, that I love that you? grotesque bit where things are just so ghastly you can have, but they're also you know, they're yeah. funny at the same time. Yeah.
0: But it's getting back to thinking about, you know, I also read Stanley Tucci, you'll be much more aware than me, those who saw the first season, but is it true that originally that his character was, was a Scotch? Yes.
1: he, uh, Yeah, he was originally supposed to, because the, the backstory is all, because there's a big speech where he talks about how he was at Lockerbie, he was at the clear-up of Lockerbie, which is based on something that a Scottish policeman told me all about, and it's in season one. And when we got to Tucci, he said, uh, I'm going to be doing this Scottish. So he hired a voice coach. And about two weeks after he'd hired the voice coach, um, his, his agent phoned up and said, Stanley's not going to be doing it Scottish after all. <laughs> <laughs> He's going to be doing it in London. And then two weeks later, phoned back and went, Stanley's just going to be doing this in his own. <laughs> so we suddenly we're suddenly this American cop. But it was we meant asked? to be with the Met or something. Oh, yeah, this sorry. doesn't <laughs> make any sense at all. No. <laughs>
0: I <laughs> you're pleased though. It's better than doing a really rubbish Scottish yeah. accent, oh, isn't it? I know, I
1: know, I know that would be yeah.
0: <laughs> absolutely grim. But uh, I, again, today, uh, you know, in the press, there was this talk again about you know uh, a Scottish film studio and all the ramifications of that rumble on. What, what were they saying? In the um, press I think today? it was a. Uh, uh, Carlaw, the Tory MP picking up on um, our culture minister and just saying what is happening with this is you know this Edinburgh studio going on? I mean there've been so many different versions to be perfectly honest I've lost count and can't keep up with them but for you as a writer and based in Edinburgh mm. but writing you know for a world market and having said that you you know you started off with that feeling uh, an alliance with the likes of John Byrne and mm. writing the Scottish accent <coughs> do you think it would have would it make a difference to you you know, if we yeah, could have a successful uh, studio be up fantastic. running?
1: Fantastic! It would be absolutely fantastic if there was. Um, I mean, you know, the stuff is it, such a weird business. The, I, I wrote a thing called The Deep, which wasn't good, and it was a it was a six part submarine drama, and it was made by the BBC, and the BBC gave it to BBC Scotland to account for you know to take up part of their requirement to film in Scotland. And there was, n- was nothing Scottish in it at all. And it, we shot it out in Dumbarton and the um, old warehouses out there that they set up the studio. Yeah. And it, you know, it counted for um, six hours of Scottish television drama to, to box tick their quotient. And it was just a, a paper pushing exercise. So to have a, a facility up here, a studio or, or, or a sound stage and all that kind of thing. Uh, and use um, and train up more Scottish technicians cameramen sparks and all that kind of thing and he brings a lot of the Scottish actors home and make and uh, you know and make drama here would be fantastic I don't understand why it has taken so long and stalled so much you know when there are facilities in Wales yeah. and in Northern yeah. Ireland I mean not you know get all the Business that Game of Thrones brings into Northern Ireland is just extraordinary.
0: Yeah, and all those amazing Scottish actors in it.
1: Yeah, exactly, yeah.
0: Hello, yes. didn't film the outside scenes where it's
1: set. Why not? Well, it's set in Svalbard, which is, as I said, 200 miles north of the north of Norway. And the logistic, there's no no infrastructure. The, The town is tiny, so there is no accommodation for a great big television crew and all the actors and all the makeup and all the, you know all those people, there's no kind of infrastructure to, replace, to 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 feed people the the way we need it catering. You know, th- um, the big trucks that we use, all the electrical generators and all all that heavy equipment that they move around on a film set. So we had to do it in, in um, Iceland. Also, the toing and froing to Svalbard was logistically really difficult, whereas the regular flights to Iceland. But we fly from London to Reykjavik. And then across to the east coast to this tiny little town called Regisfjord, which nobody's ever been to, which is now a busy place because we, well it was busy with us, not with, uh, with tourists. But they yeah. do a lot, we get a lot of business in the hotels and restaurants this wee place because of us.
0: Thank you very much. Yeah.
1: Just while you're on the topic of location, so how much of it is actually filmed on location and how much is filmed on purpose-built set? It's really basically 50-50, but every exterior is on location, almost without exception. And I, I was trying to... I, th- I was anticipating somebody asking that. I was trying to work out if there are any interior locations in Iceland that we use. I can't think of any. The, s- the set build was, is phenomenal that, for this show. Um, they took over two giant warehouses in Hayes, which is on the road out to Heathrow, and um, the whole police station interior, the civic centre interior, with a great big mural up on the wall, and the great big glass front that looks out over the town. All that is an interior set build, and it, it was um, Gemma Jackson who was the art director on Game of Thrones first three seasons. She came in and did it, and she's she's brilliant. She's, so the sets are really good quality. I mean, I think it's quite seamless when they go from an you know, banging in somebody's front door to yeah. in the hallway, yeah. and and have mm-hmm. gone from Iceland to London, yeah. and it's <laughs> incredible how good they have, they've got at doing that.
0: I love the wee supermarket scene because it reminds me of Glasgow it's local supermarkets in the nineteen seventies. s, bananas bananas. Yeah. <laughs> That Probably more fruit. <laughs> I know, I know. Um, I think that's where we're going to have to. The, the, the episode flew by, and this flew by. Obviously, we could speak to you for much longer. I'm nabbing Simon, who I hope will be on my show on Monday, two to four on Radio Scotland. So if you want to hear more, tune in. Terrible plug. Um, Thanks very much, all. Is on. there a date? What's the the transmission date for this? Is it confirmed? End of January. 26th yeah. Twenty 26? six. it January. Yeah. On Sky Atlantic. Sky Atlantic. Yeah. Um, lo- lovely to speak to continued success. Thank you. Thank you so much. Simon fun. Donald, ladies and gentlemen.